God's providence in our lives. And just to review, the word providence is from a Latin word which, which breaks down pro meaning before or in front of and videre meaning to see. So the idea is providence is God sees beforehand. He can see things from a different vantage point than we have. It'd be like if you're in an airplane flying and you're able to see some things. Like that train is going to derail. You wouldn't know about it if you're on the train. But if you're in the airplane looking and you see the bridges broken, then you know this is a problem. God is at a, he, he has a unique vantage point in our lives in order to be able to see things in a far more different, from a far more different perspective. And so we're looking, we've been looking at God's perspective as it relates to us. And our lives actually get strengthened and fortified as we trust and know that God is just watching and He's in control. He's paying attention to things. And so, so far we've went through these different um, messages. The first week we looked at the fact that our confidence grows every time we trust God. We looked at the story of a guy named Abraham, who God made some amazing promises to told Abraham, you're going to have a bunch of descendants. Your descendants are going to be innumerable. You're not going to be able to count them. And the problem with Abraham didn't have any children. So to make that promise, God had to provide some things. Um, and he did. He provided a son, gave him a son named Isaac. And then God tells him to sacrifice his one and only son, Isaac. Again, putting to death you know, his hopes and dreams for this future generation that God had promised. Well, God provided once again, spared the life of his son. And as, as Abraham trusted God, it built his confidence. Every time you and I trust God to provide, we, we have a growing confidence towards him. It helps us as we approach new things and new challenges. Second week, we looked at a guy named David and, and looked at a serious mistake he made in his life that cost him something that he could not reverse. And so we looked at this idea, let, let God be God. When, when, when things are un, you know, you cannot fix them, you can't change them, it's a time to just let God be God. Say, you know what, you're still in charge. That helps us when we're, when we're again, we're trying to fix things or put things back together that have been broken. We have to recognize that there is God and, and I'm, not, I'm not Him. The third week we looked at, in the middle, remember that God is for us. Sometimes when we find ourselves in the middle of, our lives are in situations, we are hasty and we jump to the wrong conclusion. We see something go wrong in a relationship and we jump to a conclusion that's false. And we, we, we looked at this last week. As a father, his son was taken from him and he jumped to some wrong conclusions about God. He believed that God was against him. And in fact, God was really for him. And the truth is, when we're in the middle, we need to remind ourselves God is still for me. Even though things may be rotten, they may get twisted up, Remember not to do that. So today what we're going to do is we're going to look at, the, at God's involvement in even the smallest details of our life. That God is concerned with the little things, the small details of our life. Not just the major issues that relate to nations and history. But the more I walk with God, the more I realize that little things, tiny choices, have major consequences. My wife and I, we met in um, college. And... The interesting thing about our stories, we met in college when we were both probably 19, 20, around there. Um, and it was here in Riverside that we met. But I was born in San Jose, Northern California, and my church, my parents were a part of a church 
called Foxworthy Baptist Church. And I was there in this church until I was age four, and then my family moved away um, to another city. And about a year later, Erica's family came from Georgia to San Jose and joined Foxworthy Baptist Church. So it's kind of random. We both were at the same church about a year apart. And uh, I do remember her and her sister, because I would go back and visit that church. And I remember these two long, brown-haired girls, um, you know, as a part of the church. And I had remembered that when I'd go and visit, caught my eye. And uh, But I, I, it was interesting. Didn't really, I didn't meet her. But in college, I, I had this job, and Erica and I worked together on this job. And when I think about, wow, I wonder why we didn't meet when we were four and five, or why we met when we were 18, 19. Maybe it's because we would have felt like we were like brother and sister, and that would have been kind of weird. Maybe not, I don't know. But, the, you know, when I got interested, though, in my wife, and I was trying to get her to ask me out on a date. And it sounds kind of backwards. I know it sounds backwards. But the school that we attended had a week called Twerp Week. It, was, it means the woman is required to pay. Works. That's nice, isn't it, men? You know, the woman is required to pay. And I'm not bragging, but my week was filling up, and I was concerned that I wasn't going to get asked out by Erica. I was really concerned because I really wanted a date with, with Erica. And so what I did was I started dropping little hints about my availability night. And, and, uh, and one of my friends who was a, like a senior said, you know, Josh, if you wanted to ask you out, you should just say so. And I was like, oh, and he said it right in front of her. And I was like, oh, well, she ends up twerping me anyway. So she, she makes this cake, which I thought was a nice thing. And she puts this card together and someone, she has someone deliver it to me in my dorm room. And, and on the card, it said, you know, would you like to go to this night with me? And, and got this arrow, turn over, turn to the back and says, don't think you're special. I asked four other guys this week as well. I'm like, all right. Ouch. Well, those guys were no match for my charm because the rest is history. Here's a picture of us in college. There's uh, early on in our dating relationship. But what if those guys had made a better impression? There was actually some of those guys I was really concerned were going to beat me out. Like, that guy's way smoother than me. And that, you know, and I, I just really, in my mind, couldn't figure out how she would want to date me, but she did. And we ended up getting married right after we gradu- right after I graduated college. But what if, what if one of those guys had made a great impression during that week of dates? And what if I just, you know, just showed her who I really was? And she knew the real me. And what if, what if she decided not to ask me out? You know, what if something happened? She had no avail. What if, or what if we just didn't end up working out? Try the date and just. Looking forward, it's easy to just have all these what if questions and really begin to worry about life. What if this happens? You can skip to the next slide so everybody doesn't have to look at us. <laughs> what, what if I don't get the job I want? These are other questions we might ask. Because to get a job, we usually think I have to have a break. I need my big break to get that job. Or what if I never meet the right person that I'm supposed to marry? Or what if I don't get into the school or the program or the degree? Or, you know, what if I have to settle?
for something that I wasn't supposed to have. We ask all of these what-if questions. What if the details don't come together for my dream to materialize? What if, what if, what if I never get to where I want to be? The truth is there is no human way, there's no way possible that we can tie up all the details and all the loose ends in life. If God is not paying attention to the details, then life is out of control. If He's not in charge of the details, then life's out of control. But be encouraged. Here's what we're going to look at this morning. God is in the details. He is very concerned with all of the details of life. Not just my life, but your life. God is very, very concerned. He's not just working things out for the life of a pastor because I work for God. He's working things out in our lives. He works the details out in our lives. Look at this quote from a pastor and author. It says, The doctrine of providence, the teaching, doctrine means teaching, doctrine of providence declares that God's providential rule extends to all things, great and small, from huge to the minute, the infinite to the infinitesimal. I don't think I said that right, but you get the point. God is concerned with all of the little details that we might think are just accidental. God is not... He's not a supreme clockmaker who designs and fashions an intricate clock like the world. He doesn't just create the world, wind it up, and step out of the picture and fall asleep and let it run by itself. And all of a sudden he wakes up and realizes, oh my gosh, what happened? It's not what I intended. God is very much in the details. He's still involved in the details. And so what we're going to do is we're going to pick up where we left off last week. Last week we, we looked at a guy. His name was Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons. And God made a promise to Jacob about his future descendants and how um, God was going to bless the earth through all these descendants of Jacob. And so Jacob has 12 sons. One of his sons, his most favorite son, was Joseph. Joseph was also, um, he was a little bit, um, since he was the favorite, all the other brothers hated him. They got jealous of him, so they sold him into slavery, and they told their dad that he'd been murdered by an animal. They brought the robe that father had given him and they said look he was devoured and Jacob the father's broken because he's like oh my gosh God made this promise and and so what he did was jump into the wrong conclusions about what was happening eventually Joseph who wasn't killed he was sold as a slave he lands in Egypt as the second in command under Pharaoh God put him in this high high position of the prime minister of Egypt And God, through some dreams, gave Joseph the ability to know that famine was coming in the land. And so Joseph began to communicate that we need to store up grain in Egypt in order to prepare for this great famine that's coming. And so he instructed that, and the Egyptians started storing up all of this grain so that when the famine actually did hit, Egypt had enough grain to survive. Not only did they have enough grain, but the word got out that there was grain in Egypt to be sold, and so all these other people from different areas nearby, began to travel to Egypt to purchase grain to live. Jacob, the father, sends his sons, he sends ten of his sons, he keeps one, and he sends ten to Egypt to go purchase grain. And while he's there, they encounter their brother Joseph, and God reunites the family over a course of events. And Joseph, once he reveals his identity, and he says, look, God, God saw this. From the beginning. God placed me here. You intended, he told his brothers, you intended to harm me. God meant it for good. But saving of many lives. That's the story of providence right there. 
But in that story, Jacob and his sons, they traveled. There were 70 of them. They traveled, and Joseph said, come and live in the land of Goshen, which is right next to Egypt. And so God is providing now for Jacob and his kids in the land of Goshen, and they were able to be protected and provided for. So that's where we pick things up, okay? And then this is what happens. The heart of the new king, a new pharaoh, comes into power. And that king turns against the Israelites. Find this in Exodus chapter 1, verse 8. It says, Then a new king, who did not know about Joseph, came to power in Egypt. This is about 60 years after Joseph dies. And he doesn't know the story of Joseph and how he was the son of the, you know. So this new pharaoh comes and he says, Look, he said to his people, The Israelites have become much too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, they will join our enemies. They will fight against us and leave the country. So Jacob's descendants, they're living the dream in the land of Goshen. They're being provided for. But then someone new comes into power who doesn't know about their man, Joseph. And so now they're in trouble. Verse 11 says, So they, meaning the Egyptians, they put slave masters over them, over the Israelites, to, to oppress them with forced labor. And they built... Pithom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites, and they worked them ruthlessly. Pharaoh, he gets threatened by the sheer number of Israelites. And he realizes he's got the situation on his hands. The Israelites were multiplying. What they were doing was God's promise that he'd made to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob was being fulfilled. So they're multiplying, and... <clears throat> This, this promise was coming true, and now Pharaoh, he, see, he sees, wow, I'm not going to be able to control this group of, growing group of people. These are all, they're multiplying. And so <clears throat> Pharaoh, what he does, he concocts a plan to deal with this growing threat. Verse 15, it says this. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shipra and Puah, when you, when you help the Hebrew women, in childbirth, and observe them on the delivery stool. If it is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. Opinions are divided about what the delivery stool was. Either it was a low seat beside the woman who was giving birth. This midwife would sit at a low seat beside the person giving birth to where the midwife might easily discover the sex of this baby so that whenever a boy appeared, they could take the baby, strangle the baby, and the mother would not know. That was the intention the Pharaoh, to kill these, kill these boys, because that would limit the growth of the Israelites. Take the boys out of the picture, limits the growth. Others think that the delivery stool was more of a, of a stone trough that was down by the riverside, so that when people would have babies, they would wash in this delivery stool and clean the babies, and the midwife could then, if they found out the baby was a boy, they could drown the baby or say, he, he fell, or you know, he accidentally dropped out of my hands and swept away. You know, I'm sh so whatever it was, Pharaoh was determined to wipe out the Israelites. He had his heart set on just limiting the future of this group. Verse 17 says, The midwives, however, feared God, and they did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. Instead, they let the boys live. So the midwives, they choose a courageous act of civil disobedience. And God honors it. Next verse says, Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? And the midwives answered Pharaoh. They come up with this story. They say, Hebrew women, 
They're not like Egyptian women. They're vigorous. They give birth before the midwives arrive. And he buys it. He believes it somehow. You know, those Hebrew women, they're just vigorous and they we couldn't get there in time. They just give birth so fast and Pharaoh's a guy. He's like, oh, maybe he's thinking, I don't know women. So, okay. So, God was kind to the midwives. And the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. So Pharaoh, he steps up his plan again to counteract the threat. Verse 22 says, Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every boy that is born you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. So this is the situation that Moses was born into. Moses was not supposed to live past day one. If Pharaoh had his way, Moses, along with all other boys, would have been wiped out. He was not intended to live past day one. Here's the specific circumstances related to Moses' birth. Verse 1 of the second chapter of Exodus says, Now a man of the house of Levi. Levi is one of the sons of Jacob. So, one of Jacob's sons, Levi's forming tribe. A man from the house of Levi marries a Levite woman. And she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. How do you do that? I'm sure you I mean, our third child is quiet. She was quiet. She's still pretty just even-keeled, easy to work with. She would have been one of those kids you could hide for three months. Nobody would have known about, really. Some of, our, you, know, some of you and some of ours, not so much the case, you know. You know the kids are there. But in this case, Moses was apparently able to be hidden. Verse 3 says, But when she could hide him no longer, there does come a point where you cannot hide a little one. She got a papyrus basket for him. She coated it with tar and pitch. She makes this little watercraft. She places the child in it and puts it among the reeds along the banks of the Nile. Moses, he's born. His mother keeps him as long as possible, places in this basket, puts him in the Nile River. All mothers, if you're a mom, it is wise for you to deliver your child into the hands of providence with every child you have. Just to commit your children to God. Say, God, I trust you. But Moses' mother literally did that. She literally handed her son into the hand of providence. She had about as much hope of her son's survival as Abraham had that his son Isaac would not be killed on the altar. It just did not add up. This is, this is, she couldn't think that this was going to go well. Scientists have a very difficult time predicting the flow of water. And this is hazardous conditions to put a baby in. Um, Moses' path on the river, if he found his way into the open river, could have been affected by branches and concealed rocks. Anybody been water, whitewater rafting before? I have. It's dangerous. Even crocodiles. And I, I know in like the Prince of Egypt, you know, when Moses is sweeping down the river in the animated film Prince of Egypt, you know, there's big crocodiles come out of the water and, whew, he just missed that one. Whew, under that branch, uh, by that rock. We don't really, from the text, get that idea that he's hitting the roaring rapids. Honestly, in the text, it seems like she puts him in the reeds by the banks, not even sure that he made it into the open water. Because the very next verse says, his sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. So at this point, the only hope at the mother's hand was 
She was trusting in the invisible hand of God to protect her. And if the water rose, she was trusting that God would govern the ebb and the flow. I think we hear about this story and we assume that he's floating down the stream and he just magically lands at the right place. But the text doesn't really lead you to see that. The text just says she puts him in the bank by the reeds. If you know where reeds are, you know, you could probably, the basket probably just hanged, hanged out in one spot. But then, you know, the sister is watching from a distance. And the and eyes of God, God is watching as well. But then someone else notices the baby. Verse 5, then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe. And her attendants were walking along the river bank. She saw the basket among the reeds. I think he was probably in the same spot or near the same spot of the reeds. And sent her slave to get it. It really doesn't matter if he floated or if he didn't, but I just wanted to clarify. Because we, in our imagination, we, I think we, we may add some things into the story. She opened it. She saw the baby. He was crying and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. So it catches her eye. We're not really sure what about it did, but the, the basket caught her eye. And then the cry drew her attention. If this is a coincidence, though, it's one of the most remarkable coincidences of all time, isn't it? That, that, that Pharaoh's daughter would be bathing at this spot, find this basket with the hope of this nation, the future of this nation. In any case, this young lady has compassion on the baby. If she had obeyed her father's edict, she would have thrown the baby into the water and drowned the baby like her dad had said to do with all the boys. But as you know, the story continues. Prince of Egypt, you know, he, he, he lands in Pharaoh's house and he's raised in this royal court. Verse 7 says, Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter. So Miriam, the sister of Moses, pops up out of nowhere. Hey, shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. And the girl went, this is, again, Moses' sister, she went to get the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this baby, this is to the mom, take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. This is a pretty good deal. Now Moses' mom gets called in, and she's paid to raise her own child, and to nurse her own child. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. There's a few situations in life where we don't have time to do anything but react. Moses' sister was being guided by God. She was responding and she thought, we could get a Hebrew woman to nurse this baby, and I happen to know one. Goes and gets Moses' mom. Verse 10 says, when the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter. So now once again, Moses' mom hands her son into the hand of Providence, and he became the son to Pharaoh's daughter. She named him, she meaning Pharaoh's daughter, named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. So Moses grows up in Pharaoh's household, and what that did is it prepared Moses for God's purpose. It, it, it equipped him to lead the people of God out of slavery, out of Egypt. He was powerful in speech and in action. He, he was in this place where he knew, he knew the language. He knew how to negotiate. He learned some skills while living in Pharaoh's household. He was educated, the Scripture says, in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. And he had the right instincts to work in that kind of setting so that down the road when God would use him to go and deliver God's people, 
He, he would be able, he would be the right person for the job, the perfect person for the job. He wasn't always a confident leader. Later in the next chapter of Exodus, God appears to him through a burning bush and he says, you know, you're going to go. He says, you've heard of my people who are being oppressed under Pharaoh. You're going to go. I'm going to use you to lead my people out from under Pharaoh. And Moses says, who am I? Who am I that I, he says, I could barely, how am I going to do this? And God reminds him. Now, I'm the God who kept you out of danger. I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses knew. And, but he tells Moses, Pharaoh will not let you go without being compelled by a mighty hand. I re- I've been reading that. I've been thinking about that. Again, that's the hand of providence. He tells, he tells them, this guy, Pharaoh, he will not. I'm going to have to compel. He'll have to be compelled by a mighty hand in order to release these millions a few million Israelites that the Egyptians had as slaves. God compelled him to do it, though. But this, this birth and just this royal setting where he was raised, it gave him a unique background to be able to lead these people out of the land. And here, here's the major lessons that I, I'd like to focus on as we have looked at Moses' birth and his upbringing. We can first trust God to work out the details to fulfill his purpose for us. Just simply stated, difficult to do, trust God to work out the details as he's fulfilling his purpose in our lives. This story brings up all sorts of what-ifs. What if, what, if the Mo, what if Moses the baby had been discovered in the first three months? Story over. End of story. What if the basket had sunk? What if she didn't put enough tar and pitch in it? And it sprung a leak before Miriam, the sister, could, could go and, and help. What if Pharaoh's daughter hadn't have been there? What if she chose to just go without bathing for weeks? Because she could. You know, there's all these what ifs, what if, what if, and we think about, we all have all these moments in our life. What if I didn't meet my wife? What if I didn't connect with this person? What if I didn't have that friend? What if I didn't go to that school? What if I took that job instead of this job? And we think about all these what ifs and we think, wow. Whew, that was a close call. I just barely made it past that one. But it's at times like this that we need to bow to the hand of providence. That we need to say, God, that was not accidental. That was not coincidental. Look at Psalm 139, verse 1 through 6. David says, O Lord, you've searched me and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out, my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is ever on my tongue, you know it completely, O Lord. You hem me in behind and before. You've laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. This just He's declaring, God, you have some knowledge that I don't have. You have foreknowledge about my life. Verse 13, if you skip down, it says, For you created my inmost being. Now this is where there's more of an active hand of God in our lives. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you before I'm, because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. Before we were even made, God sees us. He he. Again, he sees from a unique vantage point. All the days ordained for me were written in your book. God knows how long I'm going to live. 
He knows how long you're going to live. He's, he's ordained our days. He's numbered our days before any one of them came to be. So the game of what if, all those questions that we ask about our lives, that involves contingencies. Things that could occur or could not occur. But from God's vantage point, nothing happens contingently. Nothing at all. God knows even, and His knowledge extends to the smallest details of our life. He knows all possible contingencies. What I could say, what I did say. He knows, he knows even the smallest details. There's nothing contingent about His knowledge. And we look at Moses' story and we say, well, what if the baby hadn't cried again? There are no what ifs with God. So here are some final thoughts. Trust God to work out, the, instead of sweating the small stuff of the details, trust God to work out the details of my future. Put your confidence in God to provide and fulfill His purpose in your life. There are no contingencies with God. No what-ifs. Don't put your confidence in people. It's good, it is good. is right to follow people. Authority is something that's biblical. It's right. When you're under authority, you're protected. But do not put your full confidence in the leaders over you. Put your full confidence in God. Trust Him to lead you through the leaders that He has placed over you. Trust Him to lead through them. Put your full confidence in God. Look at Psalm 146. Do not put your trust in princes, in mortal men who cannot save. When their spirit departs, they return to the ground. On that very day, their plans come to nothing. So don't put your confidence in people. Don't even put your confidence in yourself. There is no such thing as a self-made man or a self-made woman. Like, I, I made myself. I made me into the man and woman or the man that I am. I'm not a woman. so I mean, there is no self-made people. That our, our, our plans to construct our lives falls apart very quickly. Instead of sweating the small stuff, I should also trust God to work out the details of His purpose as it relates to my family or my friends. Trust God with the people that you're responsible for. Just like Moses' mother. Just If you don't trust God with the people that you're responsible for and that you're to care about, what you end up doing is you try to manipulate people or you try to manipulate and twist and control circumstances to make sure that that person is okay and that they do what you want them to do because you think that's what they need. You can try to do that, but it won't work out. You can try all you want to control and manipulate other people's lives. You can't do it. Stop it. Your children, they've been entrusted to you. You can't control and manipulate all their circumstances forever. They're... You have to trust in the hand of God in their life. You need to set some boundaries. You need to set a course for their lives. You need to provide steady love, discipline, nurture, all of those things. But you cannot control and manipulate them. Same with your friends and other people in your life. God is in control. And He refuses to manipulate us. He sets an example. He does not manipulate us to get us to do exactly what He would want us to do. He, he, he invites us into the process. He set out a course for our life. He knows the contingencies. He, does, he leaves space for us to make choices. From our vantage point, we have freedoms to make choices. We're able to exert our will to make decisions. He gives us space that He respects because that's where He does His work in our lives. None of us want to feel like He's the marionette and we're just the little puppets doing exactly what or Pinocchio doing what he wants us to do. 
He's reserved a space for us so that we can make choices and decisions, so we can grow, learn to trust Him. He does His best work in that space. doesn't manipulate us. So as we trust Him, we don't have to control and manipulate other people to get them to do what we want. He'll work out the details, even in their lives. Another final thought is, trust Him to work out the details in what you can't control. Live as though the circumstances of your day and your life are flowing from the hand of God. All of our circumstances, no, how, no matter how terrible, no matter how frustrating or worrisome, those circumstances that you find yourself in today have passed through His hands. He has a purpose in those circumstances. You can't control the flow of your day, but God, He, he can be trusted. God is in the details. Even leading you to the point where you're at today. The fact that you're here is not an accident. We tend to think we pinball around in life. We just pinball from this thing to the next. And as fate would have it, or by chance, we just bounce around in life. And we think, wow, that, that was amazing. Man, I love fate. Bouncing from one thing to the next. So what we do is we end up avoiding commitment to anything. Because we want to leave all room. You know, for chance. We want to leave our options open. Leave room for fate. But maybe what you hear today, God's saying to you, is that there's not fate. There's no chance. God works in the details. This is your appointed time to connect with Him. You may be at a point where you've never decided to follow Christ. And you've been on the fence all your life. And you come up to the fence, you peek over, and you know, it looks really good, but I don't think I could decide to... I, I don't think I could walk with Him. I don't think I could live as a Christian. I don't think I could... And so you bounce back, leaving your options open. Or maybe you're here at church and you're exploring this option, but you don't want to make a commitment to a church or to a people or to serving or to being involved. And so, because if you do, then what about faith? What if I miss the opportunity? And so we, we pull back. What I would encourage is that you trust God is leading you. He, he's even in control of the smallest details of your life. He's led you to a point. He's led you here today. Finally, thank Him. Thank Him that He has a greater purpose in my circumstances. We all go through tough things. And as you do, thank Him that He has a plan. He's providential. He has a plan. He's not going to rip you off as you trust Him. The band's going to come up right now. and <clears throat> We're going to be receiving our offering, so if you'd like, you can go ahead and prepare for that. Also, please take out your connection card. Here's some next steps on the back. Next steps for the message. You might, God may have spoken to you about something very specific. And so you don't even need any suggestions. Maybe you already know what your next step is. If you, if you're at a point though where you're, you're not sure, here's some things to, to consider. One, read Exodus 1 through 6 and write down the lessons learned. This is looking at more detail at Moses' life. Just seeing what God did in Moses' preparation, his time in exile. And then another thing is trust God with the details of whatever it is you're going through. Maybe there's something going on in your life and you're currently running all the scenarios of what if this doesn't happen or what if this does? Maybe that thing is a word. It's your family, your parenting, your finances. Maybe write a word down just saying, I'm going to trust God with the details of that to provide, to work, to lead. The last thing is join a ministry team to begin volunteering. Again, it's not an accident that you're here. You've landed here. God wants, God wants you to grow. Church and banding with people is one of the ways that we grow in life. We commit to things. We, 
we band with other people, and we head on this journey with God, with others. And so I'd encourage you to consider joining one of those ministry teams that Taylor told you a little bit about. That will really help us continue to accomplish more for God's kingdom as we try to reach more people in this community and try to help people grow who are already part of our church. So let's pray. Father, thank you for your love. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you that you can be trusted with every detail of our lives. Right now, we just we say in our heart, we say thank you. You know what's best. We're not going to sit and live our lives asking what if and making very little to no progress for years using that strategy. Lord, help us to trust you, God, through the hard things, trust you in the most difficult choices, most challenging trials. God, we know that you're good, you're faithful. You are God alone. You can be trusted even in the details, God. So we just hand you some things, things that are on our heart, things that are weighing heavy on our lives right now. We hand them to you, God, and we just ask you to help us, lead us in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, Each week as we give in our offering, we have an opportunity to give to support some things that God is doing either in our church or for those that have yet to be reached. And so uh, one thing I want to highlight today, that our offering goes um, to different ministries. One of those is our kids' ministry. Kids is our children's ministry. As as people give and as you give, it goes for us, it goes towards the the children that that we're working with. And I wanted to show you, um, guys, you can go ahead and receive the offering while we're while we're running this video.